Well, the, uh, the fall, we talked about Genesis and Noah and the Tower of Babel. And next week, we talk about Advent, which is the birth of Jesus. And that's just a natural transition, right? Just Tower of Babel straight to Christmas. And, and what we have here this morning is this, this is kind of this week in between. And so this week in between, I wanted to do something that would be encouraging for us as a community and for you as, as we say, as the holidays approach, as, as Thanksgiving and as Christmas approach, something that is going to maybe frame your time. Now, when Advent starts next week, that's the hope, peace, love, and joy. We're going to cover that. We're going to light the candles. We're going to, as a community, do our best to prepare spiritually, right? You're going to do lots of things to prepare physically for your house, but spiritually want to help prepare your family and you for the coming of Jesus. But you know about the holidays, a weird thing, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And what I know is to be true about the holidays, both inside and outside of the church, is that as the holidays approach, is that stress and anxiety go up. Now that's just kind of an interesting, that's just kind of a normal thing that we've accepted, is it not? Like, oh yeah, of course, it's, it's Christmas, it's Thanksgiving, and my stress level's going up. And, and my anxiety is going up. That's just, that's just the way that life is. But we don't stop long enough to go, it seems weird, does it not? Doesn't it seem like, if I'm just being honest, like, doesn't it seem like Thanksgiving and Christmas should be times where actually anxiety goes down? Wouldn't that be nice? Stress goes down. Wouldn't that be good? When you think about Thanksgiving, what we're going to celebrate this week. As a, as, a, as a community, as a culture, we celebrate the things that we have been given and how thankful we really are. And some of you may even go around your tables and say, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? I'm thankful for this. And really the day in which we are supposed to be thankful and reminded of all of the things that we have been given has somehow devolved into a day in which we're reminded of all the things that we don't have but could have at really good prices if we act now and go out and buy and purchase and get more of. Doesn't that seem odd to you? Doesn't it seem odd to you that, that Christmas, what is Christmas? The birth of Jesus, our Savior is here, our Messiah has come. The Lord of Lords, the Kings of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. How is it that as we are celebrating and remembering that the Prince of Peace, our salvation, our Savior has stepped into the world, that our anxiety and our stress actually goes up? Doesn't that seem odd to you? If I stop long enough and I ponder that, I go, it seems odd to me. I think a lot of times we're more stressful than than Mary was in the first Christmas, right? Like, how are we more stressed out than she was? That's true. And I get it, right? Tension goes up. Relationship tension goes up. Relational tension goes up. Josh, if you knew who was coming over to my house on Thursday, you'd be stressed too, right? You'd be stressed. If you knew where I was going on Thursday... You wouldn't be saying these things. I would be saying these things. I get there's a relational tension. I get that there's a financial tension, especially with Christmas. I mean, 
must be nice, but Josh, I don't know how to pay for all this. You know, I, I want to give the, the people that I love the things that they want, and I don't know how to do this. So I get that there's a relational tension. I get that there's a financial tension. I get that there's this other, this other stress and anxiety in a weird way, but the, there's a stress and anxiety that goes with Christmas and Thanksgiving that is actually brought about because you remember the way that things used to be. Oh, if we could just go back to Thanksgiving last year, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. So-and-so was there. So-and-so wasn't there. You know, whatever it would be is that if we could just go back. And so for you, like the, the approaching Christmas and Thanksgiving time frame is not so much an anxiety like of like the stress of like relationships or tensions, but more of like it's this reminder of the way things aren't. It was like this, and it's not like this now. And so there's this tension. And so as we descend upon this time, we're, saying, we're going to do the Advent, hope, peace, love, and joy. We're going to do that. But as we, I wanted to just speak a word of encouragement this morning. And I thought, what better place to go than to the Apostle Paul? This morning we're going to look actually at a, at a message that he sends us from, uh, from uh, his letter to the Christians in Philippi. Now, for those of you who don't know, is that the Apostle Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And what they were was just letters from him to churches. Sometimes they were like, hey, you guys need to like, you guys need to clean up your act a lot, like a bit, like a lot. Like, this is what's going on. Like, how, do, how am I getting reports if this is what's happening? Like, no, you can't do that, do this. But then there's other times, and this is actually true of the, of the letter in Philippians, where he's writing as an encouragement. I just want to write and encourage you. And as best as we can tell is actually they had sent him a gift a financial gift, and he's writing a letter in response to that to say basically his way of saying, like, thank you. And so really it's a letter of encouragement. But the letter is actually what we would call, is called a prison epistle. Now that sounds super fancy. It's a fancy way of saying, like, he wrote this while in jail. Paul had been arrested and locked up and was going to be standing trial for his faith. And really what's going to happen is either he's going to get, the verdict is going to come back guilty in which he will be executed or is going to come back not guilty and he will be set free so when he says things like to live is christ and to die is gain if i live christ will be glorified churches will be built god will use me in ministry but if i die that's to my benefit and really he says i I hope that i die but for your sake i think i'm gonna stay and really what we wanted to know, we, what, the way we envision Paul in this place, is we envision Paul in this place as he, what he's saying is that like, he's dying. And with his last breath, he goes, I just want to be free. I just want to, I'm tired of being in pain. I'm tired of all this. I just want to go. I'm ready to go. That's not what he's saying. Actually, what he's saying is, he's, he's saying, he says, I'm up on death penalty charges. I'm hoping it comes back guilty. I'm hoping that I'm executed so that I can be with Jesus. And what he's doing in this place is he's writing a letter to encourage other Christians in other places. Have you ever been encouraged by somebody who's in a worse circumstance than you? And they come, hey, I got a word of encouragement for you. Like, you're encouraging me. I should be encouraging you. What's worse if you find out later on that there is worse circumstances, like, hey, Josh, I'm sorry you had like a bad day and that person said something mean to you on Facebook, but it's going to be all right. 
I, so how, how are you doing? Oh, I just found out I have cancer. Like, oh, well, why didn't we talk about that earlier, right? I should be encouraging you. Or there's people sometimes I know that they, they have like their story, their circumstances are much worse than mine. And I call to encourage them and they end up encouraging me. And, I, and I'll tell you what happens in these places that their words carry so much more weight. Because when somebody is trying to encourage you and everything is going their way, you get to say things like that's easy for you to say. But when they're encouraging you from a difficult place, in this case, when Paul's going to be encouraging us from a jail cell, awaiting execution or death penalty or freedom, and he's encouraging us, it carries a different weight. And so with that being said, if you have your Bibles, turn with me and we're going to go to the end of the, the letter, which is going to be found in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We used to sing this song as a kid. I rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. That's, all, that's, like, that's the whole song. That, was, that whole song was just rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Back to the top. Like, <laughs> and that's the idea. It's like rejoice in the Lord always. And because you guys forget I'm going to tell you again, rejoice, because you just forgot. You, I, just, I just told you, rejoice in the Lord. You already forgot, and so again, I'm going to tell you, rejoice. Now, paper and pen are at a huge premium in this time of the world. And so you don't repeat yourself often unless you really have to. If you just think it's really important. They tell you as a communicator, always, 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 always repeat yourself. But they weren't always afforded that sort of opportunity because of space and time and money. And so for Paul to repeat himself so quickly, he says something. He goes, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. You already forgot. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. This idea of joy. Now I'm going to preach on joy in a couple of weeks because it's part of Advent. And so we're going to leave some of that for that. But, but this idea that we have, like we, we, all, we have this idea that we should be experiencing lives of joy. By the way, this is Christians and non-Christians in the church, outside of the church. There is this great sense that we should be experiencing joy, a life of joy. And actually, that one of the great frustrations of life is that we should be experiencing joy and we're just not. And there's something inside of you that says that that's a problem. And I would agree with you, and so would the Bible. That's a problem. Something's wrong with that. The idea that we should be experiencing joy and we're just not. In fact, even in our like our, our foundation, you know, documents, life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. And really what the belief is, is if I'm going to like, we're going to put this all together, is that you have liberty, freedom, you have the freedom to pursue that which would make you the most happy, and in that, that's where you will find life. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That you have the freedom to pursue that which would make you the most happy, and that's where you will find life. But here's the problem. Is that joy and happiness 
are always going to be the byproduct of something else. True joy and true happiness are always going to be the byproduct of something else. But the problem is, is often what we do, even with God, by the way, what we do is we make joy as the goal. Like joy is the thing that we're after. And so that's going to be, that's going to be the finish line. That's where I'm going after is joy. But joy, joy is really often just the byproduct of, of something else. And when it becomes the thing, whatever we're chasing after and going after, that that will bring us joy, we end up making ourselves miserable. In fact, actually, you have stories, many stories. I have many stories where I go, man, if I just get that, if I just do that, if this just changes and does that, that will bring me joy. And all that it doesn't do is, all it does really is just bring me misery. Or sometimes people will say, like, I want to be with that person. And I think that person will make me happy. And do you know what happens then? Both people end up miserable, right? Because why? Because joy, joy became the goal. Joy is always going to be the byproduct of something else. And that's what even Paul is even talking about here. Because Paul isn't just saying, just be joyful. Rejoice! Again, I say, rejoice. What does he say? Rejoice where? In the Lord. Now, part of you may say, like, well, of course he says in the Lord. It's the Bible. Doesn't he have to say things like that? He says in the Lord because it sounds better. It's like when people come to me and they ask for advice, and I'm like, well, I, like, let's pray. Like, of course you say that. Okay, I mean... Well, I say that, one, because does it sound better? Yes, it does sound better. But two, I pray because it is better. And sometimes things sound better because they are better. Here he says, in the Lord, because it sounds better and it is better. I mean, you know this to be true, right? That actually the greatest joy you will find, ever find, is going to be the byproduct of a healthy, secure relationship right? You, you, some of you know, although we try differently, we live differently, right? But that our true joy is not going to be found in circumstances. Our true joy is not going to be found in, in, in monetary things. Our true joy is not going to be found in material things. That the true joy that you're looking for, that you so long for, is actually going to be found as the byproduct of a healthy and secure relationship, in fact, when I talk with people, the, the most joyful times of their life, I mean, the, sometimes the circumstances were great, this just happened, this happened, but a lot of things that people think about is like they were relationally secure. And the most miserable times of their life, sure, sometimes the circumstances are bad, is when those relationships begin to break down and they are unhealthy and, and insecure, and joy is robbed. See, joy is often the byproduct of a healthy, secure relationship. And I'm submit to you, the more healthy, secure relationships you have, the more joy you'll experience. And ultimately, what Paul is saying is that in God, in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, is that you're going to find the most joy in the greatest relationship, which is the one between you and God. So you rejoice in the Lord. This relationship between you and God is the greatest relationship you could ever hope for. It's better than anything you could have ever imagined, which will produce the greater joy than you'll ever experience. And what Paul says, I want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice in that relationship. See, a lot of times people think that the, my, the, the way that we interact with God is that I do what he wants me to do, right? Which is obedience. God says, don't steal. Then I don't steal. He says, don't lie. Don't lie. He says, love your wife. I love my wife. I do the things that God wants me to do. 
and then he does the things I want him to do, right? You know, help people out, you know, fill out a shoebox, fill out a shoebox, you know, uh, buy an ornament, or, you know, uh, get the gift card and get to the greenhouse. I do the things that he wants me to do, and then he does the things I want him to do. I make him happy with my obedience. He makes me happy by answering my prayers. But that's not the relationship. And actually all that that has done is we've put joy as the main goal of that relationship. But doesn't the Bible say, God will give me the desires of my heart? Well, it does say something like that. <gasps> does where? You tell me where, but it's a huge qualification. God will give you the desires of your heart. You desire God. You desire intimacy with him. You desire relationship with him. He will give you more than you ever hoped for. He will fulfill the desires of your heart. And so my question to you is, as Thanksgiving approaches, are you considered to be a joyful person? Do people know you as someone who is joyful? It's a, it's a simple question. We want to complicate that answer. Well, I mean, kind of, I mean, yes, but it depends. I mean, do people have a general sense that you are a joyful person? And if not, why not? My, 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 I, I would guess, I would guess, I would guess at some level it's because you're not doing actually what Paul says, which is I want you to rejoice in the Lord. Now I'm going to preach on joy in a few weeks. So I'll stop there. Right, I'll, I can keep going, but... We're going to stop there. That means that either you'll come in a few weeks or you're like, I'm not coming in a few weeks. So that's, I'm not doing that again. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Are you known as being a joyful person? My next question to you is, are you known for being a reasonable person? Or have the words, you're not being reasonable, recently been spoken about you? You're not being reasonable. Now context matters, right? If that comes from your child, you're like, yeah, I get that. I mean, but, 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 but if it comes from your spouse, and even from some of your children, that, that counts too, by the way. But your coworker, your boss, your employees, your neighbors, your friends, your family. Do people and I love what he says here. Let your reasonableness be known to who? Everyone. I love what it doesn't say, right? Let your reasonableness be known to your friends. Let your reasonableness be known to other people who also think you're reasonable because you think the exact same way that they do. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I've been in ministry for a long time now. Coming up, uh, this will be actually, I'll be entering into my, my 20th year uh, on staff at a church. And one of the things I've realized in that is that people always make decisions that they think are reasonable to them. And when I first got into ministry and I would hear stories like, What? That's crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you think that? That's just insane. And then I started thinking to myself, but people don't necessarily make what they perceive to be unreasonable decisions. And so when I 
thought, I said, this, this decision, however broken and wild and crazy and set the world on fire it is, this makes sense to them. And so now I have to figure out in what way are they seeing the world and what way are they seeing themselves and what way are they seeing God and what way are they seeing other people in which all of this seems reasonable. And the problem is, is that they seem reasonable to themselves, but to everyone else, they seem unreasonable. And what God says, what Paul says, as he, as, he, as he encourages the church in Philippi, what he says is, I want you to be reasonable to everyone. Let everyone know your re- how reasonable you are. If I wanted to describe our culture right now, is you've got this group of people that think that they're reasonable. That's you, by the way. And everybody else, this group over here is unreasonable. But so there's the crazy thing. Do you know what they're thinking? They're thinking about how reasonable they are and how unreasonable you are. And then there's this other group that thinks y'all both crazy. And they're reasonable. And both y'all are like unreasonable. And what do we have? Everybody who is reasonable in their own sight but nobody that's reasonable to each other. And what the Bible says, I want, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You really, oh, okay, okay, okay. You really want to stir up Thanksgiving? Before we eat, we're going to go around the table. I want you to answer one question. The one question is this. Do you think I'm a reasonable person? <laughs> go. It's, Chris, it's Thanksgiving. You can't lie. Go. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? This is used, by the way, Four other times, uh, this word for, for reasonable is used four other times in the New Testament. Three of which I, I have here for you. So the first one is in First Timothy 3.3, 3, which is in reference to the way that elders, qualification for elders. And it says here, it says, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. And so all the other times this word for reasonableness is actually, is actually translated as gentle. So not violent, but gentle, or not violent, but reasonable. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, Titus 3, 2. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, there it is again, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. But the wisdom from above is first pure. This is James 3, 17 and 18. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness, I love this, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so often this idea of reasonableness is is translated as gentleness. But here becomes the problem. We don't live in a world that thinks that gentleness and reasonableness is something to be valued. In fact, actually, we live in a world where reasonableness and gentleness is perceived as what? As weakness. We think about our political climate right now, right? The democratic debate. By the way, I could say the exact same thing about the the Republican debate four years ago. You want to win this election? Here's your strategy. You want to win this election and this strategy and this debate? Here's what you need to do. You need to go out there with the other candidates and you need to be reasonable and gentle with them. And what we're going to see in the polls, we're just going to see you rise because our country values those things in their candidates. Because that's the, 
For a candidate, they would say, that's the worst thing you could do. Oh, my opponent makes some really good points. I really like him, great guy. And we wonder why we're, why we're in trouble because here's what's happening is that we, we are valuing something that the world says is weakness. Sorry, the world says is strength. The Bible says is weakness. And whenever the Bible says this is strength and the world says that it's weak, hear me on this, is that the Bible is right. And so do people know you as a reasonable person? Or do you respond to hostility with more hostility? See, that's actually how it's used, this idea of the quarrelsome. So be, be gentle, right? Be reasonable, not quarrelsome. Calm it down, bring it down, look to smooth it out, bring peace, not to stir it up. And I know how it is. I know with when family comes together, when friends come together. And you just think to yourself, this is why we don't get together more often. Because you're looking to go. You're looking to fight. And what you want to do is you want to match hostility with hostility. But, but that's actually, that's unfortunately, unfortunately for us, unfortunately because it's complicated, but fortunately because it's good and right, that's not how Jesus responded. In 1 Peter 2, 3, 2.23, not on the screen, but I want to read it to you, referring to Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. By the way, you know anyone that could have threatened would have been Jesus. You do that to me, I will bring, I will bring the angels of heaven down on you. And he would have been justified in doing so. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What does it say? And I love here, I, he endured the suffering. He wish he did. That's not what it says. He remained silent. What it says is actually, he continued to entrust himself to the judge who judges justly. In other words, there is this, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to meet your hostility with more hostility as a way of saying, I no longer entrust God as the judge. I am no longer entrusting that God is the one who's going to set this right. I'm going to set it right. I'm going to defend me. I'm going to stir it up. I'm going to fight. And if I have to be unreasonable in doing so, well, then so be it. That's just, you were, you were unreasonable first. And if all you're going to do is match hostility with hostility, you'll find yourself in the same place. What the scriptures say is that you are to be known for your reasonableness. This is what it says here. This is what Paul says. And like all things, maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm known as a reasonable person. Well, part of you is to, to know that. And maybe even go to some people in your life and go, okay, okay, okay. So, so this morning after the sermon, I realize I'm a little bit, a tad bit, a wee bit unreasonable. A wee bit was the start. Okay. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I love what he says here, the Lord's at hand. And sometimes it seems like Paul is just like, like here, here, and then, oh, and by the way, Jesus is returning. Like, oh, okay, and then we're going to go off to the next thing. But actually he's saying that the Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because God is close. He's not far off. 
He's not abandoned you. He's with you. He's, the Lord is close at hand. Make your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is close at hand. He's the judge. He's the one who's going to set it right. He's your defender. He's the one who supports you. And, and he's your, your tower, your, your refuge. He's, a, he's close. And I love how it goes, you know, trust in God, so rejoice in him. He's close. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He's close. And by the way, be anxious for nothing. Why? Because he's close. That's what it tells us in the next verse. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be, be made known to God. Don't be anxious. Why? Because, don't be anxious, be prayerful. Why? Because God is close. With everyone, let them know your reasonableness. And then with God, you let him know your every request. Let people know your reasonableness. Let God know your request. This is what, this is what he says. And he says, don't be anxious about anything. Which is a bit of irony because do you know the worst thing you could tell somebody who's wrestling with anxiety? Don't be anxious. Oh, okay, I got it. Like, done. All right, okay. <laughs> hey, stop being anxious. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't know it was that easy. And if you've ever wrestled with anxiety, what you know is actually, it is actually a thing to be anxious about your anxiety. I'm anxious about how anxious I'm feeling. And that makes me anxious. And what Paul says, now Paul would be cruel if he leaves them there, but he doesn't. What Paul says is, Paul says, I want you to be anxious about nothing and in everything, prayerful. People sometimes, they go, I don't know. I mean, for the most part, everyone's like, I should pray more. Like, yes, of course you should pray more. I talk with people like, well, I don't pray as much as I should. I don't read the Bible as much as I should. And I go, well, here's the thing. Nobody prays as much as they should nor reads the Bible as much as they should. Because we could do it all day long and still we'd be like, I should, I should do more. I feel like, like it's just, when would it be enough? Like, when would God be like, yeah, that's enough, kid. Like, I've, I've heard enough out of you. Like, I mean, wh- like, when would that be enough? But then it's interesting that I say, I should pray more. But then sometimes I hear people say, but I don't know what to pray. And I don't know how to pray. And I go, oh, you don't know what to pray? Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I go to prayer. I'm like, I don't know what to pray about. And I go, oh, well, what are you worried about? Oh, well, okay, sorry. Okay, so what I'm worried about is one and then two, and then three, four, five, six, and seven, and then eight, nine, and ten, okay? What are you afraid of? Oh, my fears? Yeah. What brings you worry? What brings you fear? Well, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm afraid of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and those make a little bit of sense. Then, Then 10 through 10 through 312 make no sense, uh, but I still fear them. You go, oh, like that's, that's your prayer. Like that? Like, yeah, uh-huh. 
The Bible tells us that if it's a fear, and it's, a, it's a anxious, so anxious, worry and fear, which a lot of times what, what makes up anxiety. If you're anxious about it, it's a prayer. And I find oftentimes what, what happens with anxiety, the difference between, really, the difference between an anxious thought and a godly prayer, you know the difference between an anxious thought and a godly prayer? It's just about who's being addressed. Right, so this anxious thought goes, I don't think there's going to be enough money in the bank. A godly prayer goes, God, I don't think there's going to be enough money in the bank. All anxiety does is move it, all of the worry, all of the fear, all of the stress, all, it, all anxiety does is just move it inward, inward, inward. And what actually prayer does is prayer actually moves it outward. To say, I'm not going to address myself. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What am I going to do if this happens? I don't know what I'm going to do. Instead, actually start addressing God with that. God, I don't know what I'm going to do. God, I don't know how to respond. God, I don't know what to say. And all that you're doing in that is that you're no longer addressing yourself in that, you're addressing God. And so all you've done is take the anxious thought and turn it into a godly prayer. By the way, this is why if people want to know, like, man, anxiety is going up, stress is going up. This is weird. Anxiety is going through the roof. You read all of the, especially the, the non-Christian articles, they're all saying anxiety is going up among our population. We're the, we're the freest we've ever been. You know, we're, we're financially free. We're, we're economically, sorry, economically free. We're politically free. We're the freest we've ever been. And yet all it has done is increase anxiety and stress. Why? I go, I'll tell you why. Because what's also increased in that is our secularness. That God has taken out of the equation. And with our fears and with our stress, instead of addressing God with them, we're just addressing ourselves. And whenever we do that, insanity is going to go up, 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 up. And Paul says, take your anxious thoughts, by the way, anxious thoughts are not new, and you turn them into prayers. But here's the reason why we don't do it. I think most of the time. One, because we want the control. Two, I think because we just think they're silly. If I'm being honest, like, I don't know, about my, about my fears and about my worries, I'm like, they're just, they're just, I mean, some of them are real, but then there's other ones. They're just, they're just silly. But here's the, the, the beautiful thing about this passage. It doesn't say, just, just bring the good ones. Just bring the ones where I'm like, yeah, okay, that's legit. It's just bring them all. If it's enough to worry you, it's enough to give, bring fear to you, that means that it's motivation enough for it to be a prayer. Whatever you worry about, whatever you're afraid of, whatever brings you stress, now becomes a prayer. But not just any prayer, by the way. What does he say? With supplication and thanksgiving. Supplication is this idea as I'm going to make requests Thanksgiving is this way of saying, thank you, God, for like what you've done. So supplication, God, would you please? Thanksgiving, God, thank you that you have, right? It says, I want you to do both. Supplication with thanksgiving. Sometimes we just do supplication. God, would you please? Would you please? Most of your prayer life was like, dear God, and would you please? 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 Thank you. In the name of Christ. 
Now you have to do it. Uh, amen, right? That's, that's how we pray. All it is is supplication, supplication, supplication with never any thanksgiving. And if all we ever do is make requests, 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 some of you demands, 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 but you never interact with the thanksgiving is that you'll end up just entitled. God, I asked you. You said you would. God, would you please? All right, now go do it. If all you ever do is make requests without the thanksgiving, you end up just entitled. But I know other people that all they'll ever do is just thank, they go to prayer and all they do is thank God for things he's already done. God, thank you that you've done this and thank you that you've done this, thank you for this, but they've never say like, God, would you please? And I go, here's your, you think that sounds holy, which is, it's great. But the problem is, is you trust God with your past, but you don't trust him with your present and your future. You're afraid to make a prayer. And so you're just, you're, 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 it's easier for you to trust him with the things he's already done than to trust him with what you need now and what you need tomorrow. And what Paul says is, I want you to do both. And actually, I want you to pray with you. Make your request through the lens, the thanksgiving of what he's already done. You, you, you make the God, would you please, looking through the, the lens of God you already have. In other words, this idea that what he's already done gives you confidence with what he's going to do and is already doing. And then one day, when your current request and your future request become your past, he will prove to be just as faithful and you will thank him just the same. It's this idea that I make my request through the lens of thanksgiving. Paul says, I want you to do both. Supplication with thanksgiving. And so he says, I want you to be joyful. I want your reasonableness to be known to everyone. I want your anxiety to be a prayer. That's what you're responsible for. And then we get the promise in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, you already forgot. I'm going to tell you, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And whatever's bringing you fear and whatever's bringing you worry and stress, that's your prayer. So you do that, and here's the promise. The promise is that the peace of God will guard your heart, the way you feel, and your mind, the way you think. I love what it doesn't say, by the way. You do those things, and here's the promise. Everything, everything God will give you. You'll get the house, you'll get the job, you'll get the girl, you'll get the boy, you'll get the raise. You pray, and then God's going to move and do everything that you've asked him to do. That's not what it says. It doesn't even say that your circumstances are going to get better. 
What it says is that the peace of God is going to guard your heart and guard your mind. And if I'm just being honest, the truth, the truth at the end of the day is what you need most is not a change in circumstances. What you need is God to guard your heart and guard your mind. That's what you need. And that's the promise. You know, the, the beautiful thing is that is that now I've been a pastor here of Northside for, for 14 years. And the beautiful thing in that is I've gotten to do life with a lot of you here. And the beautiful thing in that is I've seen very stressful days come upon you. And I've seen you trust in God. I've seen you, you go to Him with thanksgiving and petitions. And for a lot of you in this room, like, like the circumstances didn't get better. In some cases, they got worse. But then getting to walk with you in that, we got to walk and say, it's like to watch God guard your heart and guard your mind. And I love it. I love it. I love it every time. I love it any time and every time that when what we read about here is experienced here. That brings me great joy when, when his promises that he gives us here are lived out in reality here. And so in a weird way, I go, this should be the most prayerful like Thanksgiving and Christmas you've, you've ever experienced. Why? Because that's what Paul says. Paul says, if it's a fear, if it's a worry, if it's a stress, if it's an anxiety, you, you give that to prayer in God with requests and thanksgiving, and he's going to guard your heart and guard your mind. What you need most this, this, this season is that your heart would be guarded and that your mind would be guarded. And by the way, if I'm being honest, I'll tell you what happens. The way we think, the way we feel. See, we, we stress, we anxiety, we worry, we fear. It changes the way we feel, it changes the way we think. And then in that, it steals our joy. And we become unreasonable to the people around us. And Paul says, I'm going to cut that off at the head. Cut it off at the past. You take your worry, your stress, your fear, your anxiety. Stop addressing yourself. You address God with it. He's going to guard your heart and your mind. And in that, you will find your joy in the Lord and your reasonableness with people. May that be true of you. Let's pray. And as we go to prayer this morning, actually, I want to give you a chance now. And I just want you to tell God right now about something that is bringing you stress and worry. Tell him about something that's bringing you fear. Make a request of it now. Ask him to do something. Now thank him for something he's already done for you. Now ask him to guard your heart 
and to guard your mind. God, may we not be people that internalize our worries, our fears, our stress. May we cast them upon you. That's what you have told us multiple times in your word. May we not hold them. May we not keep to them. May we not let them eat us from the inside out. May we cast them upon you. That's what you have said. And may you give us in return a peace of mind and a peace of our heart where you've you've guarded it. You've guarded us. May we find our joy in you. May, May people know that we are reasonable. And God, I just pray that as as our stress and anxiety goes up, so would our prayer. And maybe in a weird, beautiful way, this would be the first season in which our prayer goes up and we actually experience a holiday season where our anxiety and stress and our fears go down. Not because things have changed externally, but because you have changed us and guarded us. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.